0: Romans. Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. We are continuing to navigate our way through a sermon series called New Year, New, Year, New Love. And uh, today we're going to be talking about how to love, how we are to love one another from the passage that uh, Dan just read us. So Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9, is uh, where we're going to be. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be some scattered in the pew backs in front of you, or you can just uh, take a look at the screen. So I trust that you're there, close to it. Romans 12, how to love. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help and for your blessing, for your strength and for your guidance, that you would protect me, the words that I would say would be well-pleasing to you and faithful to your word, and that, Father, you would stir our hearts to put our love for one another into action. We pray in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. You know, when you're uh, cooking, uh, you're following a recipe, Uh, maybe you're making a dish or a dessert or something, Uh, generally, it's a good idea, it's kind of important to follow that recipe. And not only to follow that recipe, but, you know, to actually use the ingredients that they say you should use, right? So using the right ingredients is very important when you're making a dish. This is one of our uh, baking bowls, right? So we mix things up uh, in here, and occasionally, uh, Shelly will have a a recipe she'll pull out for dessert or for dinner, and uh, she'll discover that we don't have all the right ingredients, right? We may have most of the ingredients, but, you know, there's one or two that we're lacking. And it's not unusual for her then to uh, substitute ingredients, right? So if it calls for this, well we have that and it's very similar uh, to what that is. And so she will occasionally use a substitute, right? Use an an alternative. And most of the time, 99.9% of the time, it works out beautifully, honey. I just want to let you know, it works out beautifully most of the time when you do that. But on occasion, you know, we might ha- be eating the meal and say, yeah, I, I can tell that we substituted this for that, right? It may not taste exactly like we anticipated. Well, when we're cooking things, uh, sometimes we can substitute ingredients, right, and get away with it. Sometimes we can't. But in Romans chapter 12 today, Paul is going to give us a recipe, Paul is going to share with us a recipe of sorts, a recipe for the ingredients that we need to make a loving church. What ingredients do we need to put in the church bowl, so to speak, to create a loving church? And unlike my wife does occasionally, we can't substitute anything, right? We can't substitute ingredients. What Paul tells us to go in the bowl for a loving church needs to go In the bowl. And there are 12 of them. 12 ingredients that Paul tells us that we should mix together in the life of the church to create a loving church. John Stott uh, recommends that there are 12 of them. We're going to look at six. We're going to look at just the first six of these ingredients today from Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. The first six are sincerity, discernment, affection, honor, enthusiasm. And patience. These are the first six things that we're going to see that need to go in our pot, right? So let's turn to chapter 12 of the book of Romans and just kind of get our our bearings. Where do we find ourselves in this chapter? Well, Romans chapter 12 is a very pivotal chapter. Paul uh, moves from theology uh, to practical implications of the gospel. He talks about what the gospel is in 1 through 11, but starting in chapter 12, he talks about how to live the gospel out. And he talks about how the gospel, when we become Christians, it changes all of the relationships in our life. And so starting with verse 1 and into, into verse 2, he says that the gospel changes our relationship with God, right? And so he says, if you look in your Bibles, he says in verse 1, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, right? So it changes our relationship with God. It changes even our relationship with ourselves. verses 3 through 8. He says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. So the gospel changes Our relationship with God, the gospel changes even how we relate to ourselves. And here is where we come to our section today. The gospel changes even our relationship with one another. It changes my relationship with you and your relationship with your brother and sister in Christ. Starting in verse 9 and running through verse 16. This section is really a, a series of short commandments. Short things that the Apostle Paul says that we should do. It's kind of like a rapid rat-a-tat-tat fire of, of a machine gun. And the bullets that he gives us, that he's shooting, so to speak, are ways in which we can show love to one another. With each staccato imperative, he is essentially adding a fresh ingredient. He's adding a fresh ingredient to his recipe to how to have a loving church. So are you ready? Let's take a look at the first six ingredients. What do we need to add into our church bowl to have and to create a loving church? Well, the first one is this, church. The first thing we need to add to our bowl is sincerity. Sincerity. Take a look at what he says, starting in verse 9. Paul says, love must be sincere. Now, we've hit this before, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But the word in Greek, sincerity, is actually two words put together. It's without hypocrisy. It's being without hypocrisy. And the word hypocrisy in the Greek was used in that day for actors and actresses on the Greek stage. That makes sense, because what do actors and actresses do? They're up on the stage and they're playing a part, but what are they doing? They're kind of living a lie, so to speak. They're acting like somebody that they really are not. They're acting in a way that's most likely not consistent with who they really are. Uh, both my sister and my wife in high school and then a little bit in college uh, was involved with drama, one-act play, musicals, things like that. And they really enjoyed that. And both of them, I recall telling me that, that the the most enjoyable roles and the most challenging roles are those when you're playing someone that's totally different than who you are, right? You're not typecasted. You're playing someone completely different because you have to act in a way that you wouldn't and say things that you wouldn't do. Brothers and sisters, let us not be that way with each other. Let us not be like a Greek actor in our love for one another, right? Not putting on a mask of hypocrisy. So here's a question. Do we genuinely, do we genuinely, without hypocrisy, love each other at Grace Bible Church? Or are we like actors on the stage on a Sunday morning putting on a mask of love to cover a face of indifference? My prayer is that we would, as we look at the bowl of church love, that we would be without hypocrisy, right? That our love would be sincere. What's the next thing Paul says? Well, if you look at your Bible, the, the second ingredient that we need is not only uh, sincerity, but it's what? It's a discernment, right? We need to love each other with discernment. Let's look again at our text. Paul says, "Hate what is evil. Hate what is evil, and rather cling to what is good. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it fascinating that his A call to love one another is followed by a call to hate. you see that? He says, love one another. Your love for one another must be sincere. But if we're going to sincerely love one another, then we need to hate something, right? The two are not incompatible. And in one sense, they go hand in hand. Why? Because to love another person is to hate that which is harmful to them, right? We are loving our brothers and sisters in Christ when we are hating that which is evil to them or in their life. And, of course, anything that God deems as evil, anything that God calls sin is by default harmful to me and to you, right? John Stott hits a home run when he says this, Love is not the blind sentiment it is traditionally said to be. On the contrary, it is discerning. It is so passionately devoted to the beloved object that it hates every evil which is incompatible with his or her highest welfare. So in our love for one another, as we practice love in the church, we don't have the right, biblically, to see sin and rebellion and evil in a person's life and to continue to allow them to pursue that course of action. Uh, a few uh, a few weeks ago at this point, my mom and dad uh, were in for Christmas, and they brought uh, some cards, and they taught us a new card game. They taught, uh, in particular, the children, a very simple, very easy, very fun uh, card game. And so we were playing it, and the kids learned to play, and they enjoyed it. Uh, one day, Shelley was playing with my oldest, uh, Asher, and uh, Asher, like most of us, doesn't really enjoy losing, right? And so, sometimes teaching people to to lose graciously is is an important thing, right? And, and, and Shelley and Asher were playing together, and uh, I think Shelley won a hand or two, and uh, he kind of started to, to 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 pout and to kind of whine. But not only that, but he was. Um, kind of very self-degradating, saying, I'm never going to win and I'm not very good. And my wife had to, to tell him that's not true. You don't need to say those things about yourself, right? You're not incompetent. You're not, you're not bad. And in fact, she kind of got on him rather harshly because he was so degradating to himself. He was lying to himself. That's, that's what love does, right? Love hates what is evil. But not only that, what else does it do? It clings to that which is good. The word in Greek uh, there uh, that talks about clinging is a word that refers to uh, glue and the binding that results from the use of glue, right? We need to, like glue would cling to an object, we need to cling to that which is good in each other's lives. And so when we see that which is good, that which is helpful, that which is beneficial for our brother and sister, we need to cling to it like glue. Uh, The other day, Asher and I were doing a, a model car and it was a model car that he got from the Awana store. So thank you for that, Awana store. And uh, it's one of those model cars that you pull it out, and it has about 200 pieces. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go, okay? And the pieces are itty little bitty, right? Uh, In fact, the the instructions said that you should use tweezers to put together the smaller parts. And I was like, nuts to that, right? I'm not going to do that. Forget the tweezers. I'm using my hands, right? Not obeying the instructions. And so we start putting the little pieces together, and I'm putting it together by hand, and of course, what do you think happened? I got glue all over my hand, right? And, and my hands were sticky, and uh, for a while there, anything I would touch would kind of cling to my hands because of this glue. Next time, maybe I'll pull out the tweezers, right? Um, but that's, that's what Paul says. He says, we need to, to cling to that which is good in the life of our brother and sister, just like that glue clung to my, uh, clung to my skin. And so friends, let me ask you a question. Is your love for other people, for a brother and sister in Christ, is it discerning? Are you discerning in the way that you love your brother and sister in Christ? Or have you believed the lie? Have you believed the lie that to love is to affirm a person's actions, even if the Bible calls it sin? Because the world says the, world says the, really, the only true sin is to call anything sin, right? To call anything wrong. That's really sin, But the Bible doesn't allow us to pursue that type of love. The Bible says that it's not loving to call evil uh, good and good evil. So what do we need, right? We're making a loving church. We need sincerity. We need discernment. What else do we need? We need affection, right? We need brotherly, familial affection. Let's take a look at our third ingredient, verse 10. Paul says, be devoted to one another in love be devoted to one another in love the third ingredient that we need is affection it's a familial kind of affection in fact what paul does in this verse is he uses two words that are family words the first one is translated be devoted be devoted to one another literally it's it's the it's the kind of devotion or affection that uh, relatives have for one another. And in particular, the kind of love that a parent would have for a child, though not exclusively. So Paul says, you know, parents, you know how you love your kids. You know how you love your kids. You have you have an inbred um, affection, right? A natural-born affection for them. Your hearts are melded together with them. That's how you should feel about your fellow Christians. And then he uses a- another word. Notice, he says, be devoted to one another in in love. Literally, it's brotherly love. It's Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love, affection between siblings. Uh, my two daughters, I, I see this quite a bit. Um, in particular, during Christmas time, they got matching outfits. They got matching overcoats. Uh, and my grandmother, excuse me, my mother, their grandmother, uh, bought them matching dresses that they like to wear to church and they like, they like matching one another and I've noticed that they've developed this little habit that when they happen to dress alike, um, or even s- close to one another, um, they, they'll notice and they'll kind of stand close to the, to each other and they'll say this, they'll say, matchy, 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 you know, because they match each other, right? And so they have this cute little ditty, matchy, matchy, and they're so excited that they match one another. They have a sisterly affection for one another. Friends, Paul says that that's how our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ should be. It should be a brotherly, a sisterly kind of love. In fact, one commentator by the name of Dunn calls it this. He says this kind of love is, is a quote, a sense of family belongingness, that Paul describes a sense of family belongingness, and hear this, which transcends immediate family ties. Let's think about that just for a moment. Paul says that the church is to be like a family, and normal families feel affection for one another, and so should we, and so we should ask, do we feel that way about our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we see them as spiritual moms and spiritual dads and spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters, right? Do we have affection for them? Or have we allowed our affection for our physical families to overrule and sometimes trump our commitment and love to our spiritual family? We need to ask ourselves, how, how often, how many times have we chosen to do something with our Family, immediate or extended family over a church event, or we've just been too busy with family functions to have people within the body of church over for lunch or over for coffee, right? We're just too busy, and all the while, all the while, our love for our immediate family is transcending our love for our church family. When Paul says it should be just the opposite. So, To have a loving church, friends, we need sincerity, we need discernment, we need affection. And there's a fourth ingredient, and that ingredient is honor. We need honor. We need to honor one another. Notice what he says. Honor one another above yourselves honor one another above yourselves. Uh we live in a day in particular uh in our sports culture. I don't know if you like sports or follow sports at all. I, I I enjoy pretty much all sports and I like keeping up with them. And I've noticed a trend, at least I think it's a trend, that uh the athletes today, in particular the the professional ones, but I think it's true of, of many athletes. They, they simply care more about themselves, their own stats, their own honors, their own reward than about the team. And so I think it's refreshing when there's somebody like, uh, like Peyton Manning. I, I, I did a little research, and I found out that after he broke the NFL record for career touchdowns, which I believe was 509, he posted this, I think it was to his, his Facebook or, or some kind of media. He said, I wouldn't have a single touchdown without somebody to catch it and somebody to block for it, and somebody to create the play, and someone to call it, and someone to celebrate it with, this record isn't just mine, it's ours. Boy, isn't that a refreshing, good example of, I think, what Paul says, that we should honor one another above ourselves. That is, we put their needs, their desires, their considerations, their esteem, their reputation before our own. Friends, this could be simply recognizing people in the church, showing them, telling them how much you appreciate what they're doing. Thanks for doing a great job teaching our kids the gospel in Sunday school. Thank you for, for being here week after week at Awana to corral the kids and, and to love them and to, and to listen to their verses. Thanks so much for pre- preparing a diner meal. It could be recognizing them for a particular trait, saying, listen, I've noticed how patient you are with your children. And I really appreciate it. I've noticed how much of a servant heart that you have. I really appreciate that. It could be recognizing a a good decision. Listen, I'm so proud. I'm so grateful that you've chosen to serve on this new committee. Whatever it may be, right? We honor one another above ourselves. And yet, there's a fifth. There's a fifth ingredient that we need, and we could call it enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Let's notice. Let's notice what Paul says in verse eleven. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Don't lack in zeal. However, to the contrary, keep your spiritual fervor, your spiritual fire, if you will, all the while serving Jesus. So a fifth ingredient in Paul's recipe for a loving church is enthusiasm for serving Christ. And so what he's saying, church, is that when we as Christians are enthusiastic to serve Jesus, then naturally we're going to serve one another and love uh, love one another because we're choosing to serve Christ. Maybe you've heard about the gentleman, the gentleman who was asked if he thought that ignorance and apathy were the two greatest problems of the human nature. And his response was, I don't know and I don't care. Get it? I don't know, I don't care think about that one. Well, Paul says this. He says, I don't want that kind of attitude in the church. He urges us to be diligent and to be fervent in our, lo- in our love for, for Christ and in our love for one another. He does so both negatively and positively. So first, negatively. Notice what he says in verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal. It's the idea of, of, of Galatians 6, 9, right? Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. So, so don't, don't give up, right? Always be zealous in your service for the Lord. But then positively, he says this, we should keep our spiritual fervor. It's a word that, that describes a boiling, something that's so hot that it's seething, it's steaming. Sometimes it actually describes copper that is set aglow on fire. As one, as one writer says, to be fervent in spirit is to allow the Holy Spirit to set you on fire. I don't know about you, but it's been my experience in the Christian life that uh, I can wane in my zeal, and that I can wane in my spiritual fervor to serve the Lord. If we've been Christians long enough, I think we, we experience this, that sometimes we kind of go through dry seasons, and it's a battle, right? I think sometimes we can allow the car of our spiritual life to slip from drive into neutral, and we just kind of coast, right? We kind of coast in our service to God and in our service to other people. During the Christmas break, we had the great privilege of, uh, I think it was Christmas, Thanksgiving, I forget. Nonetheless, we uh, traveled all the way down to Arkansas, which is where my wife's family is from. And we were traveling there, and we have to go, of course, you go down to St. Louis, and then we cut east on 44 all the way through Missouri, and then we basically take, I think it's 65, down uh, through Branson uh, into Harrison, Arkansas. And uh, I, I love the, the drive, in particularly the last two or three hours. Because you start to get hills, and you start to get um, some scenery and some mountains. And uh, it's, it's very pretty, and it's kind of fun to drive. And so I like to, I like to drive that section. But I've noticed... Uh, So I grew up in South Texas where there are no hills, so I kind of had to learn how to drive through the hills, and I've noticed that um, when you're going up a large hill on this drive, uh, if I want to keep my speed up, right, if I want to keep going 65 or 70, whatever the speed limit allows, um, if I want to keep going that, I need to keep on pressing the gas, right? I need to push the gas a little bit harder to get up the hill. And then I've noticed that when I get up to the hill, I need to let off on the gas because what happens? You start going down and inertia takes over and you can go really fast. And so I hit the gas hard up the hill. And once you start going down, I kind of, I kind of let off the gas and I just let it slide. I, I let it go. But what I've noticed is that eventually you're going down, down, down. And most likely, there's another hill. And so if you keep your foot off of the gas, what happens? Your car is going to slow, slow, and get slower and slower. And eventually, you have to put your, your, your foot back on the gas again. Friends, I don't know about you, but I found myself too many times letting off the gas spiritually in my life and just coasting running on the fumes of yesterday's commitment to Christ and yesterday's service to Christ, only to find that my spiritual car is, is, is steadily slowing down. So friends, I want to ask you, are you stepping on the gas in your spiritual life? Or are you just kind of slipping into neutral? You're just kind of coasting in your service to the Lord. Because if you do, then your love for your brother and your sister will naturally wane. Well, there's one more. There's one final ingredient that we'll take a look at today, and that is patience. We need to put patience into the bowl of a loving church. Notice verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Joyful in hope, patient in affliction. And faithful in prayer. Starting here in verse 12 and then running into verse 13, which we'll pick up next week, Paul gives us five actions or five attitudes, actions or attitudes, that we should have towards ourselves and toward other Christians, in particular when the time, uh, when it's difficult, when it's a hard season of life. And so when things happen, when it's difficult, number one, he said we should be joyful in hope. That is, when it's difficult, we are to maintain our hope Biblical hope, biblical hope is not waiting for an uncertain but desired outcome. Like, I hope, I hope the Bulls will win. I hope the Cubs will win, right? That's not biblical hope, because we know that neither of those teams really going to win much. But, um, hope, right? Hope, when they, show me the rings, show me the rings. Hope... <laughs> hope is not like that. Biblical hope is having an expectation and an utter confidence in the return of Christ and our glory with him. So when times are hard, we should be hopeful that one day we will be resurrected, right? Christ will return. He will make all things right. But not only that, we should be patient. He says be patient in affliction, right? When we're joyful in hope, then we can be patient in the midst of the trial. And how can we be patient in affliction? Well, I think he tells us. We can be patient in affliction when we're faithful in prayer. So I don't don't know about you, but I can love you better when I'm joyful and when I'm hopeful and when I'm patient in trials and when I'm faithful in prayer, in particular when I'm faithful in prayer for you and when you're faithful in prayer for me, right? The former president of Wheaton College, the, the Bible school up in Wheaton, Illinois, his name was uh, Dr. Edmund. and the story is told that at the beginning and through the, through the course of a semester, uh, he would encourage his students to endure the, the, the trials and the tribulations that a particular semester might bring, and he would, he would simply say these words. He would say, chin up and knees down. Chin up, students, and knees down. That's what Paul is saying here, right? When difficulty comes, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. What is he saying? Chin up, Christian, right? Chin up. Faithful, Paul says, in prayer. He says, church, knees down. And when we do these things, we can love each other better. So we have seen six ingredients, right? And there are six more, and we'll cover them next week. Six ingredients for the making of a loving church. We must put in our bowl sincerity. We must put on our bold discernment, affection, honor, enthusiasm, and patience. And we must not use any substitutes, right? There's no substituting when we're making a loving church. And my prayer for us is that we would follow this recipe, that we would internalize this recipe, and we would pull out of the oven a really, really delicious, loving church, right? Let's pray.